I've been telling you, what we've been doing for a long time is, is we've been looking at how Jesus discipled his disciples, and we've been watching him do the very same thing to us. And so like they did, we had our college period from in chapters 1 through 8 where we watched and learned. And then in chapter 9, we kicked into a master's level where we were doing and learning as we learned so that we were going through that master's level. And then we've been talking about Jesus has now set his face to Jerusalem. He's going back home, and it's a very short period of time. It's only, in, in terms of chapters, there's a lot of material between here and the cross. But in terms of time where we are, it's only weeks to months. We don't know exactly, but it's a very short period of time. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he'll die. When he dies and is taken away from them, then they'll be in their doctoral level, which is to say they're the ones that are contributing to the kingdom of God's increase. Okay, now yeah, the Holy Spirit's in them doing it through them, but you get the point. So we've been looking at this, and one of the things I've been saying to you is, is that we're coming to the end of the master's level. Now, if you've ever gotten a master's degree, you know something, which is the end of your experience is one of two things. It's either a thesis, where you take everything that you've learned, and you, it, it's not that you do a, a summary of them, you take everything that you've learned and you use it in some sort of a research project that comes out to be a thesis. Okay? So you're doing a culminating thing where you're, you're, you actually learn a lot from your thesis because you're taking all the stuff you've been learning and all the stuff you've been growing in and you put it together in a thesis. But you can also do a culminating experience, which is to say you do some sort of a work. In, for one of my masters, I did a thesis. For one of my masters, I did a, um, a culminating experience where I worked in a ghetto. Okay? And so you can do either one of those two things, but the idea is you're taking everything that you've learned in this master's level and you're putting it to use. And they're meant to be, these culminating experiences are meant to be learning experiences. So if I told you that the way that Jesus was ending this up was he was having you do a culminating experience, like he was sending the disciples out again to minister, you would say, yeah, that makes sense. At the end of the master's time, they were out there learning something or they were doing or that they were doing something, you know, in the way of a thesis that was sort of demonstrating that they got it and so on. You would think something like that would be in play. But here's where Jesus varies from our metaphor tremendously. And he doesn't actually vary because he's doing the most important thing. But what he does is, is instead of a culminating experience or a thesis, what he does is he starts telling them stories. Parable after parable after parable after parable. And you hear that and you go... That doesn't seem nearly as important as going out and doing it, does it to you? Doesn't it seem like he should tell you the stories and then go out and do it? It doesn't seem like something, it doesn't really seem like telling you stories at the very end would be the best thing to do, does it? Well, that's what's so cool about what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks. We're going to be looking at these parables, and here's what we're going to be seeing. Jesus is the one that made us. He knows precisely the way he made us. He knows precisely what to do with us so that he can implant an idea, put a seed in you that will stew, that will churn, that will move inside of you in a dynamic way so that it's growing in you. And as it grows in you more and more and more, will it actually make you understand what it really is? And more and more and more will you therefore end up actually doing what it's really saying. I mean, I'm really serious about this. 
it turns out that the way that God made us, we actually will end up doing things more from a parable than if we went out and did it. And I, how could that possibly be? If you went out and ministered, it's so cool, it's so wonderful, you'd want to do it again. But think about it. The ministry experience would be fairly constrained in its dynamics. And when you got outside of the dynamics of that experience, you wouldn't have anything moving in you. What Jesus is doing is he's putting all these stories in us so that all of a sudden, no matter where these disciples go, no matter what they do, no matter what they're faced with, they're going to have these very simple little things of life, these seeds that are churning and growing, and it's going to cause them to do the right things. Now, I want to say something. I'm on a crusade. <laughs> I'm on several. But the one that I'm on with this congregation probably the most is this. I never, ever want anybody else in this congregation to ever do anything because you're supposed to. I want you to do what you're supposed to do. Don't misunderstand. But I never want you to do it as an obligation. Listen to me. As a sense of, well, I'll, I'd really rather do this, but I'll sacrifice. That's what we get taught in Christianity, right? What you got to do is deny yourself which is what you really want to do. <laughs> and then you have to come over here and do what you don't really want to do. And it, you're a good Christian if you do a bunch of stuff that you don't want to do and don't do the things that you do. Well, that's not a definition of a good Christian at all, is it? <laughs> a good Christian is someone who has been so conformed to the image of God, to the image of Christ, that the things that God wants you to do are the things that you want to do. You don't have to do them because you're supposed to. You do them because you just, you want to. You can't imagine not doing that. That's the thing that you want to do. Now, does that sound like a better way to live your Christian walk and to live your life? And here's the really cool thing about it. When you actually get there, the chances of you actually doing what God has for you to do go way up. When you're doing what you want to do, you'll actually do it. <laughs> and then 10 years from now, instead of having a regret about, well, I knew I was supposed to help that person, and I didn't, and I feel bad about it still to this day. Anybody got any of those regrets in their, heart, in their hearts? Anybody? Right? You know, I mean, at some point in time, right? How would you like 10 years later to be able to look back and say, you know what? I did the stuff I was supposed to do. How would you like, when you're looking back at your life, you want God to tell you, well done, good and faithful servant, Right? How many, how many of you would like, as Paul said, to say, my conscience doesn't condemn me? He's not talking about not being condemned. He's saying, I did the stuff that I was supposed to do. How many of you want to look back and say to yourself, not arrogantly, but you know that it's well done, good and faithful servant? Do you want that? I mean, doesn't it sound awesome to be able to have that instead of what we get? And I'm telling you, as long as you make Christianity out to be religions and obligations, you're going to have regrets. <laughs> but when you get it right, when you let the Holy Spirit do in you what was happening to these disciples right now, you will, you will get to the place where you'll do the things of God because you want to do them and you're so excited about it and you do them and it doesn't even feel like a sacrifice. I'm not saying there's not discipline and sacrifice in it. 
What I'm saying is, is for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Not because he wanted to do something else. He was doing the thing that brought him joy, even though there was hardship in it. Do you see it? So is that where you want to be? Because if you do, you're really going to want to pay attention to what we're doing today because this is so cool. I've been waiting for this for months, okay? So with that in mind, oh, how perfect. Will Lees is our prayer today. Will Lees, this is, this is, I've said it before, I'll always say it again, this is one of those people that I think you should be able, you look at his life and you see what God wants to do in your life. That's just who he is. So Will, would you pray for the sermon for another church? Thank you. Lord, we thank you that, um, that you give us grace to even come before you this morning. Lord, I just hearing those words, it stirs up in my heart that in your presence there's fullness of joy and in your right hand there's pleasure forever. Lord, we want to do the things that you have for us, but obviously we struggle. And Lord, I pray that if there's anything that's in our heart holding us back, there's sin that needs to be removed, Lord, that you've taken it from us already. Amen. And we just confess that and know that you're the one who redeems us. Lord, we pray that our ears would be open this morning to hear from you, that your word would teach us, that it would instruct us, that your word would be left ringing in our ears so that we'd go out and be transformed and do the things that you have for us, Lord. Lord, I also pray for the neighborhood church this morning that's across the way. Pray that their service would be full of your presence as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, they'd be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 That's great. All right. Three little principles before we get to the parable that we're doing, and we're going to do that at the very end of the sermon because we're going to do something with it, okay? But three principles, and what we're doing right now, what we're going to be doing most of the sermon today, is we're going to be looking at how do parables work in us? How did God make us so that parables do this incredible thing in us of actually changing what we want and therefore what we do, okay? The first thing is you have got to work on it. You must work on it. Okay, remember something. Early on in the ministry, Jesus uses a parable. By the way, one of the evidences of Jesus truly being God, in my mind, is parables. Because if you look at any other religion, you don't get, you don't have parables. The closest you get is Buddhism that will have, you know, pithy little sayings that are parabic-like but they still end up more in the realm of riddle, almost, than they do in the realm of parable. And, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Most religions, the Quran is an outstanding example of this, are really mostly about rules of behavior. There's history and there's all that kind of stuff. But there's do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. That's why it can be argued about and everything else. But bottom line, what I want you to just understand is there's something in parables that's incredible. So when Jesus first uses a parable, at the very beginning of his ministry, it happens to be the sower and the seed. What the disciples come back to him, they say, why do you tell stories? Now, in another version, what it's saying is, is what, what are we to make of this? Now, here's the parable of the sower and the seed. I'm not even going to read it to you because I just want you to hear it. This is the way it was given. This is the way I want you to experience it. It's a simple story. It's, it, a guy is out sowing seeds. Some of it falls on hard ground. Birds come and eat it up. Some of it falls on rocky soil, springs, springs down quickly, comes up, but the heat comes and burns it out. Some of it goes into weeds, and it grows up, it gets choked out by the weeds. Some of it goes onto good soil, bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Now, the disciples come to him and say, huh? <laughs> 
What are we supposed to make of that? Now, it's easy for us because we know the answer. But put yourself in their shoes. They don't understand the answer. Nobody understands the answer, right? And so what happens is, is Jesus comes along and he says, look, to you has been given to know this. Now watch. This is the principle that we're looking at today. And this is in the message, so it's a little breathier, okay? But, I, but it brings it out nicely. He replied, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift. That's an unfortunate wording right there. That's one, the only thing about this translation I didn't like. It's, it's more, nobody's got this insight. They're not, get, they're not having happened to them the same thing you're having happen to you. Okay, it hasn't been given to them. Whenever somebody has, now listen to what it is, a ready heart for this, the insights and the understandings are simple. Flow freely. Obvious. But if there is no readiness, no trace of recept any trace of receptivity ends, it disappears. That's why I tell stories, to create readiness, to nudge people towards receptive insight, to nudge people towards an aha, a revelation. In their present state, they can still, they can stare till doomsday and not see it. Listen till they're blue in the face and not get it. And that would be the one where he says, seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear. And what he means by that is, is they can hear the parable and they still don't get it. And so at the very beginning, he explains it to them. Look, it's real simple. The seed that goes onto the hard ground, the birds are Satan. It goes into a hard heart. It stays up kind of surfacy. Satan comes along and steals it. It's gone. The seed that God's trying to plant in your life about him. There's another seed that goes into rocky soil. It, it goes down and it springs up real fast, but it doesn't actually have a good root. So when persecution comes, it withers and dies. The seed that is in the weeds, the weeds choke it out, and the weeds are what? The world, riches, pleasures, the things that you want. This, these things of the flesh, these things of the world, choke it out. The other stuff goes into soil that's ready for it. Ready. Let me change that word ready. Looking for it. Trying to find it. I want you to think about something for a second, okay? The key variable in this is someone who has a ready heart. I want you to think about the difference between a riddle and a parable, okay? If you know the answer to this, don't say it, because those of us who were older heard this a lot when we were on the playground in kindergarten, okay? If you're young, you, you probably haven't heard this one before because it's not germane anymore, but bottom line, okay? What is, here's a riddle. What is, don't say it, what is black and white and red all over? Now, a lot of people are laughing because they know exactly what that is. But now I want you to think about something. Here's the way that we can handle a riddle. The first thing that we can do to it is say, I don't care about that. <laughs> and we can walk away in which case, no matter, even if you hear what the answer is, it doesn't matter to you because it wasn't anything in you, right? You didn't do anything. You didn't care. Another way that we can handle it, and this is the way most people, what they do with riddles is, they give it a little shot. They work at it a little bit. But then when they can't figure it out, they move on. So they put a little time and effort into it, but not much. If they heard the answer, they go, oh, that's interesting. But if they move on, it wouldn't impact them. It wouldn't make a difference in their life. The third person works at that riddle. They work at it, and they work at it, and they work at it, and they work through it, and they pray, and they seek, and they do all kinds of things, and they work at it so hard, and then all of a sudden... Got it. Aha. Right? Got it. Or they work at it really, really hard, 
And then somebody finally, I can't, I've done, I can't figure it out. Tell me what the answer is. And they say, what's black and white and red all over? A newspaper. And then they go, oh, I, that, okay, it was totally simple. It was totally obvious. But because they worked on it, whether they figured it out for themselves or whether it was told them, when they got it, it was an aha. It was, oh, that's what it is. Now, here's the key. That stuff is what will stick in us. The stuff that we work at is the stuff that'll stick, and we're just about to get there. In fact, let me go ahead and, and, and get you there now. The first thing that we have to do, if we're ever really going to get parables to change our lives, the first thing we have to do is we have to work at them. What do they really mean? Not just hear them casually and then move on. You have to work at it. And then the second principle, really simple. You must experience the aha, the revelation and appreciation by working on it. You have to work on it and come to an aha. Now, many of you know the Daniel Pink stuff because we did it years ago. For those who didn't, I'm quickly catching you back up, but this is an important principle of how God made us. Here is the popular misconception. It's a misconception. It's not true. Here's the popular understanding of what right and left brain are. Left brain is the, doing the accountancy, right? They're doing all the analytics and they're doing the hard work and the mathematics and so on. And right brain is having a picnic and having fun and being creative. See, and you can be left brain and work and then you can go home and play your guitar and be right brain. Okay, that's the kind of misconception of what brains do. Let me tell you what they actually do because it's much more complicated than this. I believe this to be an actual imaging of the brain. The first, the first image to the left here is uh, high at the top, and then the second one is a slice down inside. And I believe this is an actual image. If it's not, I apologize. It's just an animation of what they're saying. But I want you to see something about this. Do you see how, as a person is thinking, that the left and the right's working? It's not like when you're doing math, only your left brain's working. It's, that's just not true. Right and left are working all the time. But here's what's going on. The left is gathering information, gathering facts, gathering data, gathering stuff all the time. And then what happens is the right comes on top of all of that data. And, and one of the most popular ways to talk about it right now is pattern recognition. We find patterns in things. Our right brains, we are built and wired to find meaning. That's what happens. And what we do is we take all those facts and we find meaning. Now, let me give you just a brief illustration of what this is so that you'll see it, okay? It's late at night. It's dark. You're in the woods. You go into a cabin that's also dark, and you see something like this. Now, you can't really see what that is, but you can tell it's something, right? And you're, you see, so the left brain is gathering what it can. Now, understand, it's getting incomplete information. It doesn't really understand what this is, but it kind of looks like a bear, Right? I mean, it's not for sure a bear, but it kind of looks like a bear. And so the right brain comes on top of it and says, that's a bear, run! <laughs> the information about it being a bear doesn't mean anything. What means something is bears eat you, particularly when you startle them in dark cabins. So run! Right? Now, what it turns out to be is a coat rack. And so you feel stupid, but you're alive. <laughs> That's better, right? 
right? If you'd, have, if you'd have said, it's just a coat rack, and then the bear ate you, you get deselected from the gene pool, okay? So you get the point, right? So the point is the right brain is the one that comes over and has meaning, but it goes much deeper than that. And, and what, now watch this. I'm going to use, again, a joke, a little stupid joke, but it just illustrates it perfectly, okay? And what I want you to see is the way the left brain is gathering information and the right brain comes on top to make sense of it. And initially, for a second, for a split second, it doesn't make any sense. And then you figure out why it makes sense and you have this moment of joy, this aha, a laughter, hopefully. Okay, it's a pretty stupid joke, so morning. But a bear walks into a bar and says to the bartender, I'll have a pint of beer and a packet of peanuts. And the bartender asks, why the big paws? <laughs> see, you see how the laughter grows? Because it takes you a second to put it together, right? It's not P-A-U-S-E, it's P-A-W-S, right? Or it's both, see? And so the pun does this thing in you, where all of a sudden you're going, oh, aha, and it tickles you when you figure it out. Oh, that's funny. It's a play on words. That's cute, right? Now, let's get much more profound. <laughs> or let's try. I don't know if I want to tell. I think I want you to... What I want you to see is, here's the point. Okay, let's do it this way. Math. How many people in this room love math? Now, we're in Bellevue, so we're going to get too many hands going up for the regular population, okay? How many people love math? Love. I'm using the word love. See, I got two hands going up in some people. Oh, my gosh. Right? How many people in this room hate math? Many, many more hands, even in Bellevue. You do realize that all of your guys' jobs depend on the guys who love math, right? You do realize that's what drives the economy around here, right? Okay? But, but now here's the point, see? Here's the point. If you don't love math, here's why. It never meant anything to you. You had to memorize Pythagorean... I can't even say it. Pythagorean... What is it? Come on, say it. That one. You had to memorize that theorem, but you don't know what it is. You don't know what it means. And you're certainly, here's what people that hate math always say. I'm never going to use that in life. I never need to know the volume of anything. Okay? I look at the can, I look at the water, and I put the two together, and it, that's it. Okay? You didn't do math on that. Okay? I don't need math. So now here's what's happened. You gathered a lot of information. You know why? Because they make you take a lot of math classes in school, even in college. And you're, you're a fine arts student, and you have to take a math class. Not anymore now, because we let people not do that. But, but the bottom line is, is you have to, when you, if you're just gathering the facts, it never means anything to you. Here's the people in here that love math. Here's why they love math. At some point in their life, they were playing around with numbers, and they, a problem came up, and they started working the problem, and all of a sudden they figured it out and it worked as an aha, like humor. It worked as a, it worked as a, oh my gosh. But it did something much deeper than that actually. They started saying, that's cool. That's beautiful. That's important. 
That means something to me. See, the wording means something to me. When I, when I work a proof on a mathematical equation, which is exercising, right? When I'm working a proof and I work at it and work at it and work at it and work at it and I try this and try that and try this and finally all of a sudden I find the right pathway and all of a sudden, bang, there it is. That's beautiful to them. They feel that that is as beautiful as the person who loves a particular kind of music feels that song was beautiful or that painting was beautiful or that relationship was beautiful. You see it? They have the same connection in their brain. Here's, what, here's the point I'm trying to make. When right brain comes over and works at it, what happens is at some point in time, it becomes something else. And when it becomes something else, it's planted in you. You, you, you wanna know the truth? You, you, have you guys ever, have you, is anybody in here one of these mental athletes, you know, where you teach your memory to do memory things? Nobody? It's becoming more and more popular. You know how they do that? They actually take things that the brain is particularly bad at, which is information, storing information. It's not actually very good at that. What they do is they take it and make it meaning. Like they'll build a house, their home, and they'll walk into the first room and they'll say that first factoid is hanging on the coat tree. This is something that means something to them. And they hang that factoid there and then they hang the factoid there and pretty soon they can memorize thousands of digits of, of pi and they can remember names and they can, you see what I mean? What they're doing is, is they're taking what the brain isn't good at, which is facts, and they're taking what it is good at, which is meaning. They turn the facts into meaning and when they do, when you get those facts into meaning, it becomes meaningful to you and you never forget it. You don't. It's always there, and you can call on it and use it. So we've just learned another principle now. You must work on it, and you must experience the aha, a revelation and appreciation. You must work on it so hard that you get to a moment that is like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. When you get there, you own it. That's the way God made us. And then we go to number three. If you get steps number one and two right, you reset the planks, the receptors of our elephant. Now this is from last week, so I'm a, if, you did, if you were not here last week, I'm sorry. Go back and listen to the sermon, please. It was, I think it was a good one. It was too long, but it was good, okay? But the bottom line is, I want you to just understand briefly what that was that we did last week. This is, this is that, okay, here's how we are, narcissists and egoists that we are. When we see that guy sitting on that elephant, we think that that guy's driving that elephant. Now, you can actually teach an elephant and drive it. You can do that, but let's take that out of the equation because here's what's being said in the book, Righteous Mind, which is talking about how our brains are built. And what it's saying is, is we like to think that our reason is why we feel. We like to think that our reason is in control. In truth, what all the research, and the, the, we, we were to the point now where we're doing such great detailed research on this that we know this for a fact now. This is no longer speculation. The fact is, is reason, the vast majority of the time, sometimes it can change how you feel. That's one of the things we're doing as Christians. We're letting the Holy Spirit change how we feel. That's what we're doing with parables. So it can happen, but for the vast majority of things, what you have to understand is this. Reason is ad hoc. That means after the fact. 
So what happens is somebody tells you something and you have an immediate reaction. We talked about it last week. You have an immediate reaction to it. And then what your reason does is come up with a reason why you're right. And if somebody's arguing with you, why they're wrong. That's what reason does. It's, it's ad hoc, after the fact. You're, you're not, you're not, you didn't reason yourself into the sense of what was right and wrong. You had a sense and then you used reason to explain it as if it was reason first, but it isn't. See it? So what we have to do is we have to understand the elephant's pretty much going where it wants to, and you're just along for the ride thinking you're in control and you're not. And so, how do you get your elephant changed? <laughs> if your elephant's leading you the wrong way, the joke that we had last week about, you know, you need to start making decisions that don't require a time machine. If you want to start making the right decisions, then what you have to do is, is that you have to understand that that elephant is made up of six things. Care, harm, fairness, cheating, loyalty, betrayal, authority, subversion, sanctity, degradation, liberty, oppression. This is not Americans. This is human beings, different cultures, different religions, different settings, different genders, different everything. The brain is wired so that the sense of right and wrong that we have in us, what we call the conscience, okay, that's what the Bible calls it. That sense comes from these six variables, and here's what the facts are. And these are the facts. You cannot take any one of those six out of play. The, the people that don't believe in God, as the author of the book, Righteous Mind, does not, what they will say is social evolution, social biology, so evolution. And what they'll say is, it turns out that you need all six of those to stay alive. You need all six to stay alive. That's why the brain does this. That's how they explain it. I would say it differently. I would say God has built us in a way that having all six of those does indeed keep you alive, but it does something more. It's the six things that he wants in you in order that your first reaction to something is good. Understand something. Our first reaction to things can be polluted. We can have our consciences hardened, as the Bible talks about, right? In other words, our, our receptors can look like this. He talks, he talks about this things as receptors, like what you taste. And what you taste can be great big care and harm and liberty and then some fairness. But then these other three, loyalty, authority, sanctity, in the modern world understand something. Those three, loyalty, authority, and sanctity, in the modern world, those three are denigrated. They are not thought to be important. What's important is care. What's important is liberty. What's important is fairness. But loyalty is not important. Authority is not important. And sanctity is not important. Now, we can do that because we're prosperous and the world isn't dangerous when we're prosperous. If our world got dangerous, all of a sudden, you'd find out real quickly why loyalty, authority, and sanctity come back into play as being important for us. So what we're trying to do is, we're trying to get to a place to where we have an equal amount of all, in other words, you taste everything that's in the food, right? Not just certain things, picking A, a and B, you're getting the whole menu, you're getting the whole thing, you're getting the whole flavor of the whole thing. That's where we're trying to get to. So said another way, what we're trying to do is we want to go from an imbalanced sense of things to a balanced one. We want to go from a partial sense of thing to where we are really using everything, all those planks.
Okay, now if, that, if you're a little confused, you probably weren't here last week. You still may be confused even if you were. But the reason why I'm saying all this and the re- what I want us to do is I want us to understand something, okay? Yeah. What I want us to understand is we can get things right. Our sense of things can be wrong, right? <laughs> we can get it wrong, right? <laughs> and so what we need, what God says we need is a Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name and he'll teach you all things. It goes on to say, he'll bring your, to your remembrance, he'll bring to your memory the things that I taught you, like, say, a parable. See? There's this, you know, you're in a situation and you remember this parable and that helps you understand what to do. And the more that that's ingrained in you, the more that that's your reaction to the thing, your instantaneous reaction, not your reasoning. Because usually here's what happens. There's a, there's a, I'm going to do the Good Samaritan story in a second, but, but briefly, Good Samaritan story, guys, beat up, bloodied on the road, right? First guy comes by, he's a religious person, it's going to defile him if he helps this person. So as a quote-unquote godly person, and by the way, who's Jesus talking to at this point in time? Priests and religious leaders. Religious priests, the godliest people supposedly, and the religious experts, and so the religious leader comes up and says, that's going to defile me. I'm supposed to be in the temple. So he goes to the other side of the street. How godly of him. And he's saying this right to them. So they're getting this parable. We talked about how parable were difficult to understand. They can be really simple to understand too. <laughs> this really ticked him off when he used this parable. And then he says the religious expert comes up, you know, the scribe. And the scribe comes up and he says, oh, I have been too much. I got to go across the street too. So the two religious people completely fail at doing what God would have done. What does God want done? The hated Samaritan. Samaritans are the half-breeds. Samaritans are the people that Jews hate more than any other Gentiles. <laughs> they're worse than Gentiles. They're pigs. Well, Gentiles are pigs, so they're even worse than pigs. Okay? They hate Gent- Samaritans. The Samaritan comes. Now watch what he does. He bandages the guy up. He carries him back to an inn. He pays for all of his expenses. He leaves money on account. Is is this guy sacrificing something? I'm sure he had somewhere to go to. (laughs) And I'm sure he didn't need to spend a couple thousand bucks on this guy. But then he doesn't just do that. What he does is he says, I got to go. I did have something else I got to go do. I got to go. When I come back again, any other money that he incurs, I'll pay for Now, which one of those people do you want to be? Because here's what we do. Watch. Here's what we do. If if we're principled. Now, it's not bad to be principled, but I just want to show you the difference. Here's this bleeding person. And what we do is, is we go, I'm busy. I don't have time for that. And we go around. And then we go, the Good Samaritan story taught me something. And it was about helping him. But he's way back there. And I'm already way over here. (laughs) And so we keep going. You see where principle catches us? Too late. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You could write a book on the principles to be found in the, in the, in the Good Samaritan that have been written, and they are literally, you could get multi-volume works on all the principles of behavior that come out of the Good Samaritan story, and anybody that's reading them is no good. It actually is no better at actually helping the person in need <laughs> because it was principles. Here's what has to happen. You have to hear that story and you have to say, I want to be the kind of person who's not going to go buy that person 
and then end up regretting it. I don't want to live my life missing the moments. I don't want to live in regret. So I have got to own this story. I got to work on it. I got to work on it until it becomes a revelation to me. Here's how you work on the Good Samaritan story. Really simple. What makes you not want to help the guy? <laughs> That's a great place to start, right? What makes us not want to help him? Well, you might get bloodied hands, or you might not think you have enough money, or you just don't want to do it. <laughs> you got to get past. You got to work on it until God gives you an aha. And when God gives you an aha, you will own it. And when you own it, your first reaction will be to help the guy. Now, we're actually going to do this in just a few minutes. We're going to actually do this with the parable that we're looking at today. But what I want to show you is, okay, the hope or the Holy Spirit you send to my name, he teaches you everything. He's the one that's helping you get balanced. See, he's the one that's helping you get all of the things in play so that whatever it is that your instantaneous reaction is, it's the right one. He's the one that's getting you more to a godly place. If you don't have the Holy Spirit because you don't know the Lord, welcome, great to have you here, but understand something. You still have a conscience, and the Holy Spirit is still speaking to you. Now, when he does speak to you, you can ignore him. In fact, you can even get to the place to where you're saying, I think that that conscience thing is wrong. When it tells me that this is right and that's wrong, I think that that's right and that, uh, that's wrong and this is right. Now watch how this works. But we all have it. We can harden our conscience to where we really think that doing something evil is good. Now watch. Just like I looked at last week, just look at the difference between the two, the flesh and the spirit. The people live according to the flesh, which is everybody that doesn't have the Holy Spirit inside teaching them how not to. <laughs> leading them how not to. Leading them into a different elephant. Different set of facts inside of their elephant. Everybody who's doing that those, uh, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. Let me just skip down. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. <laughs> See? So there's a way that your conscience can be affected to the point that it's not hearing much from God. But you can set your mind on the Spirit, which is life and peace, skipping down again. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact, what? The Spirit of God's in you. And then you've understood that there's this problem, and you're asking for help, and the Holy Spirit is helping you, because that's who he is, the helper, right? And it gets to this place. Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter is one that ought to be read by every person on a regular basis just to remind yourself of what happens in culture, what happens in the world. I'm just pulling out one part of it. The basic idea is, is we're pushing away the truth of God. He says, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. In other words, in creation, you could have known God, but they didn't choose to know him. Instead, they pushed the truth away and as they pushed the truth away, their thinking became nonsense. I'm going to say something right now. I am asking for grace. 
I'm about to say something about something that's going to offend 30% or more of the people sitting in this room. And one of the reasons why it's offending such a high percentage of people is because this is the kind of church that handles this issue differently than a normal church does. Okay? And we're talking about LGBTQ issues right now. And we're not, this isn't a sermon about that at all. But it's an illustration of that, and I need to get to it. I just need to show you something about it. But I'm asking you, if, you, if you're here and you think that there's nothing wrong with that, that there's no issue with that, that that's fine, which, by the way, if you're under 30 years old, it's only about 20% of you that think there is an issue. The rest of you think, right, as we had somebody say one time, the, the rest of you think, we're right, you're wrong, you're going to die, it doesn't matter, we'll wait till you're dead, and then it'll be right like it's supposed to be. Okay? Now, I just want to say something, okay? I want you to understand that that, that this is all right here in Scripture already. So I just need you to have grace for me, because you know me, and, and if you are in the LGBT community and you've made that known to me, or you believe that, you know what you've gotten from me, which is love. I didn't agree with you, but you know what you got from me, which is me, fully and holy, okay? Can, so can we all have grace on each other for a moment here? so that I can show you something that's in Scripture and it doesn't just sort of blank you because that's what happens. Okay? All right? Now watch this. The thinking becomes nonsensical. They're, the minds become darkened. Claiming to be wise, they're not wise. I'm, I'm tempering, okay? Therefore God delivers them over in the cravings of their heart to sexual immorality, impurity, and that's when he goes into something. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a broken mind. A mind that, a conscience that wasn't working. But do notice what it says. God delivered them over. I want to say something about, and again, this is not an LGBTQ, but I want to say something about people that have that desire. I'm not saying they don't have that desire. They do have that desire. What you have to understand is it's part of what God's doing in order to try and bring about a repentance ultimately. Now, if you have that desire, you're thinking, no, that's not true, but I love you. My door is open. You know my email. You know my phone number. I'd love to talk to you about it. Okay? And not to, not to try and quote unquote change your mind, but I'll have a conversation with you about it, about why Christians think the way they do or why God thinks the way that he does. And then it's up to you to make the choice. As I always say, God gave you free will. I must minister in a way that I, have, that I honor that free will in you. So I'm not trying to, okay? All right, now. But God delivers them over. God delivers us over because he's, He lets us take a step down that withdrawal of covering to a degree that lets us fall down to another level, and then we start experiencing something that's difficult. Now, what I need you to understand is right there at verse 22 or 24, right after that, cravings in our heart to sexual impurity, he goes right into men lusting after men and women lusting after women, men desiring men and women desiring women. Okay, and that's where he goes. That's where he goes. And you have to do something when he does that. You have to ask yourself, why? Why is that right in the heart of there? Or more accurately, what I have to do at this moment in time, what I just want to say is, do you understand something? When a popular celebrity stands up and gives an impassioned speech that is filled with care, the beautiful thing about this thing that we're learning about righteous mind is, is you can give people do where do is do. Okay? There are people that care about people being happy, about people loving who they want to love. In itself, that's not a bad thing. God wants us to care. God cares. 
Cast your cares on him who cares for you. Thank God he cares. Okay? But the point is, is you can so overwhelm the care part that you lose the other things that are in there. And, the, and what I'm trying to go to is, is what our culture is doing right now in incredible fashion. We're pushing a truth away from ourselves. I almost don't want any amens. I appreciate you saying that, but I just, I just want to say, I don't want it to be judgmental. I don't want it to feel like somebody that's struggling with this or that doesn't believe this way is being judged. So no, no just compassion on that too, okay? But here's what I'm saying, is that when we push that truth away, what he's saying is, it'll lead to even more confusion. That's the argument God's making. And we're right in the middle of this dynamic right now in this culture in such a heavy way. Because it is almost, it's almost impossible for a Christian to speak the words that I'm speaking right now and not come off in a way that is completely judged, that is completely written off, that is completely marginalized, that is just, right? You know, tolerance, but not for that. You see what I'm saying? And, and here's why I take a minute to say this. I'm begging for you to consider whether or not the words that God is saying in Romans 1, 18 through the rest of it have merit. I'm asking you to work on it. I'm asking you to go to the Lord and, and work on it to the point that he would give you an aha about what's going on in your own desires, in your own heart, whether you have that feeling or whether you're sympathetic to those who have those feelings. I'm asking you to work on it and say, why do I feel the way that I feel when the word clearly says to be another way? Why? And what I'm saying is don't be casual and don't spend a little effort on it, but then move on. I'm saying work at it until you get an aha. Because when you get an aha, you'll be able to stand up here and have what I know is in my heart. And I know that, I know that God loves everybody that's in that lifestyle. And I know that I exemplify and manifest his love and care. Not with compromise. Are we, you can feel it, right? This is important. We need to be able to find a way to dialogue about it in a way that we're giving, we're being generous to each side and in a way that'll allow us. We're not, our job is not to convince otherwise. Our job is simply to present, is simply to offer, okay? But you see what can happen about your conscience? This is what God's talking about. He's saying your conscience can get hardened to the point that it goes bad, and so here's what he's saying, to where it's, it's just not accurate. It's got that heavy lines on certain emphasis, but not on others. See, it's not balanced. And so what we're doing is we must work on it. We must experience the aha. If you get steps one and two right, we reset the planks, the receptors of our elephant, and here's what we're going after today. We reset our instantaneous sense of right and wrong, the thing that most impacts what we want to do and therefore will actually do. When we really work at it, we get the aha. It goes into our hearts in a way that it resets what our instantaneous reaction to things is. Okay? And now here's the parable. Okay? This is the one we're going to work on right now, all of us together as a, as a group. 
When Jesus noticed, this is right where we are in Luke, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who's more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat, then you'll be embarrassed, and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he'll come and say, friend, I have a much better place for you, and you'll be honored in front of all the other guests. And now he's not just giving them advice, he's going into, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, let's hit this, let's hit this parable casually. What does it say? Just, just call it out. What is it telling you to be? Humble. Really hard, right? You got it. I got it. Now I can move on. No. Guys, come up. The guys that I asked to come up. I want to show you why that doesn't work. Okay? Where's Philip? You got to come. Okay? Okay, here. Take this chair and put it on that side. Try not to hit the monitor. You guys, oh, right over here. Okay? Uh, yeah, that'll work. Okay, you know, no, you got to come here. You got to put that chair right next to it there. Here. Just like this. There's a Careful seating. Okay. All right. Now, this is a business setting, and who's the boss? He's got the tie on, so there's a big hint, okay? So, so Philip is the man. He's the boss, and these four guys are going out to dinner, and as you can see, they weren't smart enough to put the tables around, or the chairs around one table. So what, so, but there's this seating. This is the seating, and these three guys are the guys that want a promotion. They're the guys that want something more, Right? So, Philip goes and he sits down. These guys are behind him. Now, what you guys are doing is a little bit like musical chairs because you're trying to make it to where that is not the chair you get into. You're trying to get in the seat at the right or the left. So you guys jostle and play musical chairs until somebody gets the one. Now, you go and sit down here. See? See? Okay, move over, move over. All right, so Colin gets it. You're the, you're the good one, so. All right. Now, now, now look. That was awesome. Wow. Talk about making the point. Okay, now watch. You see, here's what's happening. You heard a, you heard a sermon in the church about being humble, and you heard the five points about how to be humble, Right? But when you, were, when you were following the boss into the dinner table, those five points mean ad hoc-wise, you can realize. But you're trying to get a promotion. He's taking you out to lunch to talk about a promotion, right? So you were jostling. That's what we do. So it's not enough to tell me that I'm supposed to be humble. It's not enough to give me five homiletic points that spell out humble, or however many words that is, six. The letters, that is, okay? It's not enough to give me the little acronym. It's, it's not enough. Because in the moment, humility is hard. <laughs> right? So here's what I want you to do. There's your parable. You've got three principles. Work at it. Look for an aha. Use those in order to get where God wants you to be so that it reshapes you. Two and threes, maybe four. Break up, do that. Thank you guys very much, okay? That was perfect. <laughs> okay, I want you to take just a couple of minutes. 
Pam, go ahead and put a little music behind it. Oh, you're not, oh, it's Kevin, isn't it? I'm sorry, Kevin. I knew that. You look just like Pam, okay? <laughs> it's the beard, yeah. All right. What's that? What I want you to do is I want you to talk and I want you to say, you know from the parable you're supposed to be humble, but, but how does this parable make you reset the planks, rejigger the balance so that you would actually be humble? What's in this parable that if you work at it a little bit, you'll see, oh my gosh, oh, that's what he's actually saying. He's not just saying be humble. Let me give you a hint right now. He's not saying be humble. That isn't actually the point of the parable. That's the result of the point of the parable. So what I'm asking for is, what's he actually saying? And I want you to talk, and I want you to work on it, and try and tell me, what, what is it? What makes this work? And we're going to take maybe five minutes until I see everybody getting bored with it, okay? So meet up, talk, okay? Hey, Adam, Adam, we need to work on this strip. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's still pretty trippy. Interesting stuff, is it? Is that interesting? Yeah.
Oh, that's good. Well, then I like that I did it because it takes it to sexual, and I do start with that. <laughs> okay. All right, 30 seconds. No. Yeah, no, but I'm going to be pretty quick, so. Okay. Okay. All right. All right, who's, who's from your group who's going to tell us What's the deeper truth to be found in this? What's the thing that when you work at it, you get to an aha place? And you've got to be a little bit succinct for me. Thank you. Okay. Uh, true, hum true humility is submitting your will to the master, to the Amen. host at the table. Um, Amen. If you just look at the surface and you say, no, um, being humble means sitting at the foot of the table, then when the host comes to you and says, move up to, the, move up to this other place, and I will honor you. That's good. You'll say, oh, no, 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 no. Okay. I'll be yeah. down here at the end of the yeah. table. No, true humility can be boldness and even look great. like arrogance when you're under the will of God. That's great. It's the same thing, too. If you go down to the bottom of the table and what you're really doing is hoping that he'll raise you up, oh, that just sucks, right? Really, what if he doesn't? <laughs> All right, let's go, Pam. Okay. The real Pam. The real Pam. Yeah, the one, my name is not The Pam. one without the beard. Love you, Kevin. Um, so we got to thinking about stuff as well, three of us. And what we came up with was a stopping and thinking, not doing something that's just instinctual, whether it's going it's to the lowest seat or the highest seat, but just stopping and either praying about it or just kind of observing before. And it's actually a business principle too, but I get it. other things. It's good. So it's a stopping and thinking because the Lord may want you to take the lowest seat, or the lowest place, or he may say, no, I want you to come up sure. here, and then you got to go, sure. not go, oh, no, no, no. They go, yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Okay, who else? Somebody over on this side. Philip? So I, rather than putting myself in the position of someone who's, whether or not I'm going to be humble or not, but what if there's a, a deeper thing of saying, regardless of the position I'm at, how can I raise someone else into? Wow, I love that. That, that is that so position. you too. We've just we just uh, Greg Fisher did such a wonderful job with the ushers, but we just made him. Greg wanted to step down, as we know, we honored him, and you took it. And this is why we had you take it, because we thought this is a guy who really wants to raise up other people. I love that. We need we need something else. Somebody back down this way, or go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. You gotta stand up. So you have excuse me, I freak out when I talk uh, in public. Um, I'll help you, just keep it short. <laughs> our, our take was uh, two perspectives on sort of the same concept. Knowing your place in God before trying to find your place in the world. Um, similar to Amen. The, the idea of Amen. being in the world but not of it. Amen. It's awesome. Okay, Rich Bixby. Got to stand up. It's hard, I know, on your... Yeah, thank you. Okay, you've got a couple of principles. You've got the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's if beautiful. you want the seat, just hand it over to them. Another one is to do whatever you do, do heartily unto the Lord. And he'll, he'll take you and he'll reward you. And that's what's in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 5 which also ties into the first fruits. When you give or whatever you do, just do it because 
that's what's in your heart to do. Don't do it to be seen of men. If you do it to be seen of men, then you already have your reward. Yeah, it's great, if Rich. If you're doing it unto the Lord, it's it great. says that he'll reward you. Let's do, let's do one more, Lance. Okay. Uh, down here. Oh, did you already have one? We'll go here, and then we'll go. Okay. Okay, so at the beginning, uh, the guests all come in and order themselves as they see fit, but that doesn't matter. The host comes in and puts people where they're supposed to be. Oh, I love that. That is awesome. <laughs> That's going to get to where we're headed to right now, too. One more, okay? Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, no matter how important or smart or whatever you think you are, there's always someone more important Amen. whatever out there. That's right. And it's only a matter of time before you run into an event where you're yeah. going to both be there. Yeah. So don't always just let, okay, well, I must be the most important yeah. person that got invited to this one. You know. I love it. I love it. All right, now let, me, now let me tell you where I got to as I worked on this. And let me, let me make it clear. I had more time than you did, Okay. I had days to work on what's the deeper message. And here's what I think is actually going on, okay? What's Jesus really trying to communicate to us? Aren't you sick of trying to push a rock up a hill? Aren't you sick of being in this position where you're having to jostle with other human beings that you would love to count as more worthy than yourself, but you'd also love that raise? You'd also think you might even be better at the job, and you may well, in fact, be better at the job. Aren't you sick of carrying everything on your shoulders, of carrying all your life on your shoulders? Aren't you just... When you're young and filled with testosterone as a young man, pushing a rock up a hill can actually seem like it'd be fun. But when it rolls over you a couple of times and crushes you, you get to thinking that that's fun. Women can be, particularly in the way that things are now, just as aggressive, just as self-promotional, just as self-oriented. The fact of the matter is, when you're self-oriented, here's what the problem is. You're the one that has to carry it. And it just is exhausting. God lets people experience things so they'll come to repentance. If you would like to self-promote yourself, he'll let you push the rock up the hill as many times as you want. But finally, one day, you'll become what we call wisdom. And you'll say, I'm not supposed to be pushing a stupid rock up a hill. God is the one who made me a masterpiece. He's created me new in Christ Jesus so that I could do the good things he planned for us long ago so that I could do the thing that he made me to be. And maybe it's that promotion and maybe it's something else. But I don't have to promote myself. I can say, you do what you want with me because it turns out that the message from the one who's holy and true, he's saying, I'm right about this and I'm true to it, what God opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. You didn't get the promotion because you got the chair. You got the promotion if God wants you to have it because God wanted you to have it. Amen. That's why you get what you're... And if you get something because you fought to get it, then that's just going to become another big rock on your shoulders because it wasn't the thing God had for you. Amen. Wouldn't you like to be free? 
Wouldn't you like to be done with all of that rat race because you're one of the rats? Wouldn't you like to not live life like that anymore? Wouldn't you like to live life simply trusting God? So when you walk into a room, you put others before yourself. Why? Because that's a good thing. And if God wanted you to be at the wherever, it's going to, you know, if you, you want to be reasonable, you can argue just as easily that the guy that sits at the bottom of the table being humble is the guy, is the thing that, the, that God was looking for. When they pick a pope, what they say is, enter a pope, leave a cardinal. What that means is if you're a cardinal and you think you should be pope, you will definitely not get to be pope. Because you're not the right guy for it. You've, you've got an assessment of your, the person that gets to be Pope is the guy that should think to themselves, I don't want to be that. By the way, he just said the most incredible thing in this encyclical that he just sent out about, about having a compassion for divorce. And, and he just said the most amazing thing. He says, if I, I hope I can get this quote right. He said, he says, we're supposed to help people form their conscience, not replace it. We're not supposed to be handing down encyclicals about what we're supposed to do so that you become rules people. We're supposed to help you understand why you want to be that and why you want to do that. Isn't that beautiful? And this is, what, this is what's being said. This is what Jesus is saying in there. And the way that you know that, and I'm going to go backwards a little bit just so that you can see it. But look at what the last thing says. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the key to the whole verse. That's the key to it. When you work on it, when you pray about it, that's the one that all of a sudden you'll go, oh my gosh, I don't have to get the promotion, the thing. If God wants it for me, he'll do that. All I have to do is help the person. <laughs> I just have to be who God made me to be. He'll take care of all the details. And when we get to that place, then it's no longer this, it's this. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that you could figure out. His peace will guard your hearts and your mind as you live in Christ Jesus. Oh my gosh, wouldn't it be lovely to start living in God's peace and quit pushing those stupid rocks up a hill? Amen? Amen. I hope there was a bit of an aha. If you'd worked on it hard and spent some days on it, it would have been an even bigger one. You get it? In all these parables, we're going to be using that simple little rule. Work hard at it. Look for the aha. The thing that totally gets you to where, do you feel it? You see, I'm not, it's not me anymore having to think about the principles of being humble and so on to help that person or to sit at the bottom of the table. It's now just automatic in me. Oh, God's the one that's got me. <laughs> I don't have to worry about that. They, let them worry about it. That's what they do. <laughs> I get to just be in God. I get to just be at peace. And he'll do with me what he wants to do. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, thank you for setting us free. That's what you did. You came and you set us free. 
Oh God, thank you for setting us free. We just keep not knowing that. <laughs> we find out there's so many ways in which we're still in bondage. God, thank you for setting us free. In Jesus' holy and precious name, reach down and grab those cups. There's one on top of the other. And in that bottom cup is this, is this striving, rat-raced, rocky, boulder, crushing, stupid reality that we've all chosen. <laughs> and it broke you. So take your finger and break it. <laughs> and we lift it up to you, God, because what we're saying is, is you took all of that nonsense and stuck it in the grave where it belongs. And what you brought instead to us was healing. There is healing in your wings. There is healing in your cross. By your stripes we have been healed. So we take this bread together right now saying, God, thank you for healing me from the very things I was doing that were killing me. In Jesus' name, take together. And now in Jesus' spectacular name, and because of God who loves us so much, God, you have given us a life of freedom. You have given us a life where we can be at ease, at peace, no matter what's happening. It doesn't mean there's not going to be hard times and sacrifice, but you will cause us to want what you want, and for the joy set before us, we will endure. Not just endure, we will prosper. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we lift this cup in which is all the incredibly, exceedingly beautiful and wonderful things that you have for us. Hallelujah, God, thank you. Take this cup together to be free. Did you like that sermon? Yeah? Can you see why I was so excited to get here? We got weeks of this to come. These incredible insights that God has that set us free. Let's, let's come forward, ushers. This is a beautiful time to respond to God in freedom. Not in some bondage, not out of some obligation. God loves a cheerful giver. And what that means is God loves people who are just saying, I love pouring into your kingdom. You who have poured all out to me, I love pouring back into you. 10% and much more. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, receive from our hands our thanksgiving. Receive from our hands our praise. Receive from our hands an act of our love. Receive right now us as we say, I'm in with you. In Jesus' name. <laughs>